Well, you still got your Bibles in your hands. Let's go ahead and look at Colossians. We're going to start there today and we'll circle back to it. Colossians in the New Testament. And go to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And I want to read to you from that our primary text today. Paul says to the church at Colossae and to us as well, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Isn't it interesting how history rarely remembers the losers? It definitely does not celebrate them. Think through this with me just in the arena of sports. Let's go back to, I don't know, ancient history. January 26, 1997. Quick. Can anyone tell me who the Green Bay Packers defeated in Super Bowl 31? One of you's got to be a sports savant. (laughs) You just looked it up on your phone, huh? Even for you football fanatics in the audience, can you remember the losers in 2003 and 2005? Some of you might be able to, but let's maybe switch to an arena of a little bit more importance. Let's think political candidates. History very rarely remembers a loser. And even more apparent is once a candidate loses, no one follows him. Can any of you tell me who lost to the elder George Bush? Michael Dukakis. Now, how many people are still running around the world going, Dukakis, Dukakis, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. Anyone? (laughs) Once a candidate loses, especially if it is two campaigns in a row, that person goes into relative obscurity and no one ever really hears of them again. Within one generation, definitely, that person is pretty much lost to the tides of time. As humans, we want to follow victory and popularity. It's within us. It's innate. This is apparent in sports and political campaigns, but it's even more apparent when we look at, say, social media. Who do you follow? The losers or the people that are popular and the winners? The pretty people. We're called to follow someone. It's innate within us. It's what we're created for. Think about how we do that. Who do we follow? The amazing thing about Jesus of Nazareth is that by all accounts, his insurgency, his subversive campaign to roll over the top of the Roman Empire— And to fight against the religious leaders of his day, it failed in the eyes of his people. His followers claimed that he was not only a religious teacher, a rabbi, but that he was, in fact, the messianic king promised in the Old Testament. Remember that the messiahs for the Jews were not just religious, they were also political and military leaders. They thought that Jesus would lead them in a revolt that would overthrow the massive Roman Empire. Hope springs eternal for this small band of rebels. They wanted him to lead a revolt like the Maccabean revolt that had occurred 160 years earlier. They thought if only he could strike up enough zeal, we could get this done. And they were looking for a military leader that would win. So when he was there on the cross, what do you think they were thinking? They were thinking, we've lost. But yet, as we will see today, for some reason, this random rabbi and carpenter from a rural area in northern Israel, 
He sparked such a movement that the entire world is celebrating it today. Talk about a following. This morning, I want to show you and encourage you in what I believe is the unrivaled victory of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King. So let's first examine this fact of history. You can write this down. This is the first point I want to make today. Followers of failed leaders shrink away and disappear. Followers of failed leaders shrink away and disappear. All throughout history, you can see this. But even here in the Bible, this is very, uh, very illustrative. Take a look with me at Peter, for example. The picture we get of Peter is that he was a strong leader, possibly the oldest of the group of disciples. He was probably somewhat of a strong man. He was a fisherman. And prior to the cross, we see him standing in bold confidence, ready to fight on behalf of Jesus. He even told Jesus, I will die for you, right? And standing there with uh, a group of soldiers, both Roman and Jewish, he was willing to take out a sword and fight. That's pretty gutsy, right? A big group of soldiers about to tackle him, and he is willing to fight. Now, he didn't have the greatest aim, and he ended up cutting off an ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, Jesus, you know the story, he stopped him and he healed the servant. But then immediately after that, Peter begins to shrink back. Look back with me, uh, you can look on the screen here at John, this is John 18, verses 15 through 17. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? And Peter responded, I am not. A little bit of a difference from what he was about to do. Here he's talking to the lowest of the low, a servant girl in the household of the high priest, and he says, I, I'm not with that group. Now what about the disciples? Well, they heard the news that the tomb was empty and they were confused about what was going on. John 20 says this, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this was John, also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They all disappeared to their homes, hoping to blend in and ride out the storm. And in most of their minds... Their movement was most likely dead because their leader had failed to start a revolt. Some of them started to believe at this point, but most of them, they were hiding in fear. And yet there was hope because they were still gathering together. If we continue on in John 20, this is what we see. It says, on the evening of that day, that Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. You can see what's going on here. They have hope. They see it slightly but they're still scared to death. They did not want to suffer the same defeat that their leader did because they didn't know yet what had actually happened. They were most likely wrestling with the words of the witnesses that had gone to the tomb, saying that there were angels declaring that he was alive, but yet, what do we do? I know if I was in that position, I'd be going, has John lost his mind? Jesus is dead, man we got to all start going back to our jobs. Like, we got to figure this out. Maybe I'm just like Doubting Thomas and you guys are more faithful than me, but that's how I would have thought. 
They didn't quite know yet what was going on, but Jesus shows up in the midst of this story and encourages them and commissions them. Up until this point, even Jesus' disciples, the closest to him, had fled. There on the cross, John was at a distance, and Mary, his mom, was at a distance, but even they were separate from him. He was alone on the cross. And this fulfilled the prophetic scripture that the Messiah's followers would shrink back. This is in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Followers of failed leaders shrink away and disappear. And by all accounts, in that present moment, Jesus had failed and his disciples were shrinking away. But what we also see from history is this, the opposite. Followers of victorious leaders conquer in the name of their leader. Followers of victorious leaders conquer in the name of their leader. Followers of failed leaders shrink away and disappear, but followers of victorious leaders conquer in the name of their leader. And at this point, they were showing that they were following a supposedly failed leader. When I think of this point, though, that followers of victorious leaders conquer in the name of their leader, I immediately think of David fighting against Goliath, the underdog fighting against the giant. As I've said before, I have no idea why all the tall people in Scripture are so evil, but (laughs) got to go with it, right? So the little guy, he comes and he fights against Goliath. And here's what happens. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Remember that that is a name that means the general of the armies of heaven. Okay? And the name Lord there is Yahweh in the Hebrew, and the hosts means the armies of heaven. It says, The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That is some good smack talking right there, right? I never had anybody say that to me when I played basketball, but that's pretty good. And he says, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, David was going to conquer Goliath. And this took amazing courage. You guys know the story. They routed them after this. No one could defeat Goliath up until this point, but when David stepped up in the name of the God that he knew was victorious, he conquered in his name, and he eventually became king, and people followed him, becoming one of the most victorious kings in the Middle East. It's the same reason we pray in Jesus' name. This might make you rethink the way that you pray. When we say in Jesus' name, we are tacking on to what we've just stated into reality. We're tacking on the fact that he is our conquering king. And so when we pray against the enemy, when we pray against the sin in the world or the sin in our own lives, we are saying in the power and authority of the king I follow, Jesus, amen, which means so be it. There's power in following in the name of a victorious leader. And this idea was the very test that one of the Pharisees suggested to the rest of the religious leaders. When the movement of the church, known as the Way, started to grow, people were starting to get worried. The disciples had showed up at the temple and they were telling everybody about Jesus. And so the Sanhedrin, the leaders, the religious leaders, were sitting around debating what they do. One of their most wise members stood up and he spoke. 
Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Go to Acts chapter 5, verse 34. I'll give you a second to turn there. Acts 5, verse 34. Give me an amen when you get there. Verse 33 is finishing off this part of the story about the apostles preaching and how they were angry with them. And it says in verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. Coincidentally, he was also Paul's teacher. Stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this is If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Pretty good test. This is amazing wisdom. If it comes to nothing, it's like all the other misfires of messianic activity. But if it does not go away, we should pay attention, he says. Luke, the author of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing this in a way that was truly prophetic. And so what is the answer to this leader's statement? As we stand in 2018 and we look back to this idea of the church and of the movement of this this carpenter, this rabbi from northern Israel, when we stand here today and we look back and we realize that supposedly 2.5 to 3 billion people on this planet are today celebrating the movement he started, what would we answer to this leader's statement? The church has not gone away, so it is of God, is it not? Satan has even tried to usurp the church, to destroy it, to subvert it, but it has never disappeared. The church keeps advancing. And we in the United States, because we're so America-centric, we think, oh, the church is shrinking. Well, yeah, in the United States, we may have growing apathy, but throughout the rest of the world, the extent of the church is exponentially growing in Southeast Asia and Africa in South America. How could this be? You see, something amazing had to happen to make these followers who were shrinking away turn into these zealous proclaimers and heralds of the gospel. What happened in the midst of what was going on? They went from hiding behind closed doors for fear of what would happen to them if they stepped outside to this. Take a look at verse 40 there. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. We're we're not talking like slap on the wrist here. We're talking they beat them. They probably stripped open their back like they did Jesus. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the risen anointed King is Jesus. Folks, something had to happen. 
Something miraculous had to occur for these men to go from being scattered to being bold. Followers of victorious leaders conquer in the name of their leader. So it seems to me, if we look at this same test that Gamaliel used, and we think through what happened with the disciples, something had to happen. And so I want to say to you today that the change in the followers proves Jesus' victory. The change in the followers proves Jesus' victory. And if you're thinking, oh man, Hans is trying to do a double meaning here, you got me. Not only the change in the followers in that first generation of Christians, but what leads the world to understand that our king is victorious is when there's a change in the followers that they themselves can see. The change in the followers proves Jesus' victory. As I see it, there were two things that caused this miraculous change. You can write these down. First thing that caused the change was an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. An encounter with the resurrected Jesus. According to the Gospels, angels had shown up to declare the truth of Jesus' resurrection, and yet the disciples were still operating in fear. I don't know about you guys, but if an angel showed up at the foot of my bed one day, I probably wouldn't go, wow, this is amazing, let's go out and be zealous. I'd probably be a little bit fearful too, considering the description of some of these yoked out winged angels that go and do battle on behalf of Jesus, right? But something else beyond the angels helped them come to this place where they suddenly gained courage. All the evidence they saw did not matter because their fear of following a failed leader was crowding everything else out. But then, in John 20, after they were gathered in fear, this happened. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. What a great greeting. He says, guys, you don't need to be afraid. Then he said to Thomas, who had been doubting him, he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. That must have been an awkward moment, right? Talk about a little bit close, uh, you know, going into somebody's bubble, right? He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. And look at what Thomas answered him. Everybody say it with me. My Lord and my God. This wasn't like, oh, hey, Jesus, what's up? Oh, nice of you to join us. Something amazing happened. And Thomas, even in his doubting, recognized what it was. He stood face to face with the risen Jesus. And Jesus said, in effect, Thomas, you have to deal with the fact that I was dead, but I now live. Touch my wounds. And Thomas wrestled with this truth. And when Thomas submitted to that, his response was, my Lord and my God. This morning, I want you to come face to face with the risen Jesus. Maybe he's not standing here tangibly before us, but we must still come face to face with the same facts that Thomas had to. A person in that day with a spear wound in their side does not survive or faint. They die. And the fact that there was no sucking noise coming out of that wound when they stabbed him and his heart burst and outflowed a, 
separation of water and plasma shows that he was dead, and yet he stood before this man who doubted him. 2,000 years later, we have to wrestle with this same truth. What should have squelched that moment of Jesus uh, showing in victory was if there had been no body, if, if they had only saw him dead on the cross and never risen again, but here they have Jesus standing before them and he shows them his wounds. This turned them from fear and weakness to power and courage, even to the point where they were willing to give their very own lives and in essence said to the leaders that wanted to destroy them, bring it, we rejoice. Amazing. If this is true, which many of us in this room have given our own lives to proclaim, not in the same way, but just by surrendering our lives, this truth demands a response. So what will you do with the resurrected Jesus? If you're a person sitting here today, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you were drugged here by someone. Maybe, maybe you know about the story, but it hasn't really affected your life. I want you to come face to face with the resurrected Jesus. I want you to think about what it means that he stood among his believers and convinced them to the point where they were willing to give their own lives. My desire for you is that you turn to him today as Savior and Lord and God and King so that you may live. That you repent from all the failed saviors and failed gods and idols of your life that have left you empty. You see, the reason we hop from one thing to another, from one idol to another, is that truth. When we follow a failed leader, we shrink away from it and we try a new leader. And so those things that we shrink away from and that fall away in our lives, those are the failed leaders, the failed messiahs that we've turned to for salvation, and we need to let them go. And instead, we need to turn to Jesus and live. If you don't know Jesus here today, let him draw you to himself and fill you with his Holy Spirit and bring you into the community of his followers. I want to invite you into this community of believers and ask you to give your life over to Jesus. And if you want to do that today, then I would suggest you talk with whoever brought you or you come find me. I'm pretty easy to find in a crowd. And you can come talk to me about what it is to follow Jesus. I would love to discuss that with you. They came face to face in an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But secondly, I believe this miraculous change in his disciples was not only caused by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, but also with an infilling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that when he left, he would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to them. And earlier, when Sarah was reading us Matthew 28 about Christ's declaration of victory, he said fully, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a statement of victory, folks. It's a statement of exaltation, of enthronement. He went to the cross, a lamb to the slaughter, but he resurrected a victorious king. And he showed up and he said, guys, I am the Lord of hosts. The armies of heaven follow me. And his resurrection was not the end of the story, but the beginning. Look with me just a little bit back to Acts chapter 1. Here in Acts chapter 5, you can go to Acts chapter 1 and look at the first five verses there. Pay attention to the wording here because this is very, very important. Luke uh, wrote the gospel according to him, to Luke, and then he also wrote this second work, 
the Acts of the Apostles. And in the Gospel of Luke, the prequel to Acts, the author and historian Luke speaks of something very particular. Look at what he says. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All he began to do and say. In other words, Acts is the continuation of Christ's work through his body, the church. Jesus is just as much alive today as he was standing in that room with Thomas and the disciples. Do you believe that? All he began to do and say. The Gospels were only the beginning. Often, I think that we as Christians look at them as the end. We think, well, that, the story's over. I just wait till heaven. Now, no. All he began to do and say is he fills us with the same Holy Spirit that allowed him to resurrect from the dead. And he gives us the ability to walk in his name and show in his name that he is victorious. How does this work? Well, on the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover that he had celebrated with his disciples, the Holy Spirit would come upon the apostles and empower and enable them to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God had been inaugurated. And these two things an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and an infilling of the Holy Spirit explains the miraculous change in the apostles. Jesus shows up and they go, wow, he's alive. Maybe we didn't lose. And then he gives them the empowerment and strength of the Holy Spirit. And they think, forget even the question, we're victorious. And look at the conflict between Peter and the apostles and the religious leaders. Go back to chapter 5 and we'll look a little bit before what we've already read. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Give me an amen if you're there. Now let's start in verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. What the apostles experienced and witnessed turned them from failed followers of a failed king, shrinking back into obscurity, to courageous soldiers and heralds that a new kingdom had been formed and a new king was on the throne. No threat coming against them would cause them to turn away. They were no longer living in fear, but they were fighting in victory. They were living from the perspective of 
the unrivaled victory of Jesus. Write that down. The unrivaled victory of Jesus. Why is it unrivaled? Guys, at the beginning of every season, everyone is a winner. By the end, there's only one. And guess what? A few months later, it starts up again, and that same winner became a loser again. Drove me nuts when I played basketball. We just won, and yet it doesn't matter because as soon as the game's over, everybody's looking at the next year. Political campaigns. This president will finally fix our problems. Oh, wait. No, he won't. Next. Think about it. In every capacity of life, victory fades and someone else takes the spot. Jesus is the only one who has an unrivaled victory because he alone is leader and king and God. The unrivaled victory of Jesus. What was it that Acts 1 tells us that Jesus preached to the disciples after the resurrection? He says he, pre- it says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs and speaking about the kingdom of God to them. They stood before him as he told them the truth of, the, of his victory over all the hostile powers. We read it earlier in Matthew 28 that Sarah read to us, all authority and power. Okay, so when you say the word all, how much is left over? None. So if all authority and power is given to Jesus, how much authority do we have over our own lives? None. None. How much authority does any king or leader in the world have? None. The only authority that we have or that any king has is because the authority has given it to us. That's how powerful he is. And luckily, as Christians, he's given us an authority to proclaim the truth of his kingdom because he has given us the same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that Jesus himself had on this earth. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ defeated, conquered, killed sin, death, and any adversary against the kingdom of God and any adversary against his people. And this brings us back to our primary text from Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Who did the work? God. God alone is the one that did the work. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling. Imagine with me for a second if you call up somebody who sends you a bill. And you say, hey, I know that I had $1,000 that I am supposed to pay to you, my whatever, cable company or phone company. And they say, oh, it was canceled. No, 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 I, I want to still live under that debt. Could you, could you maybe keep that debt there so I can continue to live under it? Who would do that? <laughs> now we would say, it's canceled? Oh, well, praise God, I can live in a way where I never have to pay this again. I can take that $1,000 and go do something else with it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, that is the life you live from. You don't have to worry about a debt hanging over your head that maybe you're good enough to eventually get it removed. He has canceled it. How did he do it? Take a look. It stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, 
every principality and power that wanted to stand there before God and accuse you and accuse me of being sinners, Jesus says, yeah, I know they are. That's why I have these nail prints in my hand. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In ancient Near East, this meant that a king would step on the neck of his enemy and he would drag him through the streets as a slave, showing everyone that he was conquered. Church, do we live from this standpoint? Do we live from this standpoint in the way we look at every day with thankfulness and praise that God has destroyed anything that comes against us? Do we live from this standpoint in the fight against our own sin by the empowerment and infilling of the Holy Spirit? Do we live from this point in fighting against the injustices in the world and the sin that creeps so easily into the church? Is this how we live? Jesus calls us to live this way. You see, our desire to glorify ourselves and worship ourselves and what we desire has separated us from the loving creator God who made us. We still believe we have our own autonomous authority. But that same God did not destroy us for our sin and rebellion. Instead, he paid the price for our sins, for yours and mine, through the substitutionary death of his son on the cross in our place. He took our place He became sin for us. And because of that, we have been granted forgiveness of sins. But that is not the end of the work of the atonement of Jesus. We love forgiveness, amen? Amen. Come on, church. Be Pentecostal for a minute. We love forgiveness, amen? Amen. There we go, amen. And that is an amazing part of the work of Christ. Without that, we would have nothing. And if it ended there, we'd still be thankful because we wouldn't have to spend eternity separated from him in eternal damnation. But that's not the end of the work of the atonement of Jesus. We also follow a God that gained victory over the hostile powers of darkness, that reign in this creation and have rebelled against him. And because of this portion of the atonement, we can truly proclaim that we follow a victorious Messiah. We follow Christus Victor. Everybody say Christus Victor. In the early first few hundred years of the church, Christus Victor was the only view of the atonement. Jesus is king, we follow him, so we are victorious and we will reign with him forever. The cross, and I think in a much needed correction, became very much more part of the picture in the Middle Ages and into the Reformation and all the wonderful fathers of the Reformation who I praise God for all the time said, let's focus on the cross because we need to remember that we've been forgiven of our sins. There's a a legal perspective there. And we are thankful for that. But in correcting, I think we may have overcorrected and sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't just die for our sins so that it affects us when we get to heaven. Jesus reigns as victorious King and Messiah. We would do well in every portion of every day to remember Christus Victor. It's so good that we remember the cross and focus on it because without it, like I said, we'd be be dead in our trespasses and sin. But we also need to remember the importance of the victorious portion of the cross. I want to give you a few things this morning that I think it's important to remember about the cross. Hopefully we've discussed enough that the cross was true and the resurrection was true and the resurrection is proven by the change in the followers of Christ. But now what do we do with that? Okay, he resurrected. Hans, you've proven it to me. Hopefully the Holy Spirit has proven it to you. 
But what is the importance of the resurrection? Well, the first thing is that God is just, merciful, and good. The resurrection proves that God is just, merciful, and good. You see, Jesus paid the price for our sins, yes, but God did not let the wickedness of mankind have the final word. See, again, he could have just said, okay, yeah, he's going to pay, that sacrifice is going to die like the Old Testament lambs, and yeah, at least you don't get to go to heaven, you'll be annihilated. Or you don't get to go to hell, you'll be annihilated, you'll be just turned into nothingness. And if he left it there, we'd go, well, that's nice of God to pay for our sins, but man, Jesus was, he was sinless, he was innocent. That's not a very just God. See, when he raised Jesus from the dead, one of the things that he did is he vindicated him. He paid the price for our sins, but he also vindicated him in the fact that he is innocent and pure and perfect. God's plan of restoration to the cosmos would not have been complete if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And so his death on the cross shows that he's merciful for us, but his resurrection shows that God is just And he raises those who are proven to be innocent. And by Jesus' blood, we can be made clean and innocent as well. The resurrection proves that God is just and merciful and good. Secondly, the resurrection proves that our king is alive and will return. Everybody say it with me. Our king is alive and will return. Let's do it again. Our king is alive and will return. One more time. Our king is alive and will return. When you're walking through the grocery aisle at Winco, do you walk around as a follower of the king who is alive and will return? When you're sitting on your couch watching TV, do you sit there as a follower of the king that is alive and will return? When you're talking to your kids about Jesus, do you talk about him as the guy who just died on the cross and that's great because he gets us into heaven? Or do you tell them that our king is alive and he's coming back? Is there an anticipation to your life? Our king is alive and he will return. We follow a king whose reign has begun and will have no end. It didn't pause. Sometimes the way I live life shows that I think it paused. His victory will never be overcome. His throne will never be usurped. We can be assured when we look at the news that tells us the world is going up in a big old flaming ball that Jesus will return. And he will do it in the proper timing for his kingdom and his people. And that means that we don't sit around on our hands waiting for it to occur. We live with anticipation that we know it will. Our king is alive and will return. Third, our priest is alive and intercedes. Our priest is alive and intercedes. I... uh, Grew up going to some Catholic schools, and my wife was raised Catholic, and we were hanging around with some extended family members one time, and um, this was when I was a young, zealous Christian all those many years ago, right? I'm not young and zealous anymore. (laughs) Ha ha. And we were standing there, and um, the priest was there. Wonderful man. I've had some great conversations with him. Uh, Good man, uh, good follower of Christ. But it was so sad because uh, one of the family members, she told her husband, she said, hold on a second, I got to go do something. And she runs over to the priest and she says, Father, will you pray for me? I've got this situation. She outlined the situation and she goes, and I know, this is a direct quote, I know that your prayers mean more 
So will you pray for, for me? And in my youthful zeal, it took everything in me not to go over there and grab her by the shoulders and say, you can do that. You don't need the priest. Guys, if you're waiting for me or any of the other leaders of our church to pray because, you know, we have a bat phone to Jesus or something, it doesn't <laughs> exist. You are part of the priesthood just like I am. You have access to the throne room of the king just as I do. And that's why we need to pray for each other. Because here's why we have such power in those prayers. The one who's listening to us is Jesus, the one that died for us. And he loves us so much that he listens. And in all my failed attempts to pray something, he goes, I got this, Hans, and turns to the Father and says, this is what he truly meant to say. And I praise God for that. And he's doing that every day. Our priest lives to intercede for us. And so we can know that we are not alone in the fight in the midst of the kingdom of darkness that surrounds us. Jesus lives to intercede to the Father on our behalf. So when we feel condemned by the pronouncements of, the guilt, of guilt by the enemy or condemned by our own hearts, we know that we can turn to Jesus as our intercessor, our mediator. Even when we are in bold, blatant, rebellious sin, we can fall on our knees and say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Please intercede on my behalf. And he welcomes the chance to do so. Our priest is alive and intercedes. Fourth, the resurrection tells us that we have been given the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, unless I go to the Father, I can't send you the Holy Spirit. How sad would it have been that it just stopped and he was in the grave? We're amazingly helped by this glorious helper. Jesus said he had to go to the Father and he'll send the helper, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell within our hearts and within the church to assist us in our fight here on earth against sin. As I said earlier, this, I think, was the other half of the equation as to why the apostles could fight with such zeal and such strength. And this is why Paul says to us that as Christians, as the church, we are more than conquerors. This is from Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love Paul. Let me tell you all these things, and just in case you're doubting me in any capacity, anything else in all creation. Jesus, you don't know the situation I've got going on. This one thing that falls under the category of anything else in all creation. And in these things, because Paul and the disciples were more than conquerors, that same spirit passes on to us. And this sin that we are able to defeat, that separated us originally from God and separates us from one another, it is something he has given us the victory and the power to overcome if we understand this. Patrick next week will be teaching us on the fact that the love of Christ empowers us 
And the Holy Spirit empowers us to bring us into a place where we can defeat not only by the blood of Jesus the separation between us and God, but we can also defeat the separation that exists between one another. And so because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to bind us together in unity. And in so doing, we have been able to speak victory over the rebellious spiritual authorities that originally tried to defeat Christ. Remember a couple weeks ago, we read this. Through Jesus, he was bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Folks, if you feel alone, recognize that you're not. Let us put our arms around you, let us walk with you, and let us help you in the midst of becoming and being more than conquerors in Jesus. The resurrection shows us that this is what we do. And by our very existence as a body of Christ, we speak that same trash talk to the enemies of Christ that David did to Goliath. Well, fifth, the fifth thing that the resurrection brings us is that it means we can live in victory. By the cross, our sins were atoned for. By the resurrection, though, the power of sin and death have been conquered once and for all by our victorious King. And so we can proclaim along with Paul, as he did in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. Not just Jesus. Us. The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, if sin is reigning in your life, I pray that today the Lord can begin to remind you and empower you by His Holy Spirit that you have a new identity in Him. You are not only sons and daughters of the Most High King, you are conquerors. You're conquerors. You walk in the same victorious reign that He does. And conquerors, you see, they do not shrink back. They keep fighting until victory is fully accomplished. And this morning, because Jesus is risen, we can know that not even death can separate us from the love of God nor from the love of his people, nor from the plans that he has since the beginning of time for his church. And united, we will walk alongside one another to see that conquering come fully to pass. And so this Easter morning, this Resurrection Sunday, I want to finish with the words of Paul there in that same place in 1 Corinthians 15, but I just want you to listen And I want you to listen as if Paul is standing here before us today, speaking to us. He says, because of this victory, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Church, our Lord and King, is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Let's live out our lives in a way that shows that.